This is the CQ University Australia podcast, where we talk to some of the university's interesting characters. Welcome to the Grapevine, and today we're talking with Adam Rose, who's a water researcher at CQ University. Indeed. How are you going today? Ah, not too bad. Like I said before, a little bit nervous, sort of like uh, I was just before paddling onto a, the, the cloud break. Uh, in Fiji, so a little bit of nervous energy. That's all good. Yeah, that's all good. Um, like we do with our podcast, we just want to learn a little bit about you. So we're going to go back in time a bit. Can, <laughs> can you tell us about where you grew up and your family life and things? Yeah, like that? okay. So it's interesting. My family life and the university life sort of um, had a crossover when I was uh, just reaching puberty. So at the age of thirteen, we had new neighbours move in. Um, he was the coxswain at the university, so he was the boat driver for research. So when I wasn't at school, I was in the research boat, either in the estuaries catching mud crabs, out in the harbour doing benthic research, or and the son-in-law that, they, that moved in next door as well, they bought a farm out at Charleville. And uh, so then I have the freshwater experience now with the farming from Charleville. So I have a bit of a weird sort of upbringing. Um, so you, what, you jumped right into research at the age of 13? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> what happened was, I, um, so the first project I worked on was looking at mud crab legions, and I wasn't doing that. Leonie Anderson and Gladstone was doing a master's, but they needed somebody to catch him, and next door, he was also a professional crabber. So I think I was probably, yeah, 12 or 13 when we started that. Interestingly, last week I was back on the harbour with one of our researchers in in the research facility now Nicole Flint she's fantastic doing mud crabs so that's uh 20 years ago it's a bit of a loop but um sitting up in the boat and looking around just smiling that you know I was the kid in the boat helping the academics and we'd usually get academics from all over the world and so an interesting part of growing up on the boat with with the academics was you found out they didn't actually know everything and, and I think that was something really important to learn from a young age. So even from 15, you know, you'd catch a mud crab and, or you'd put pots out where they, where they think they'd go. These guys might have just flown in from England two weeks ago. And, and they really respected that local knowledge as well. So I think with them saying, oh, you need to do this, you, you should do this, inevitably, I, I ended up doing this. So, yeah, it's... A, a bit of an unusual one, but I think, um, maybe not typical, but I think at a regional uni like this, that we have the potential to do that sort of thing. And from me doing that, I'd love to, once I you know, finish this doctorate and start doing my own research again, to bring in some of the, the you know, school kids and give them a bit of an idea what we do. Growing up regionally, you finish school and you get a trade. If you're really good at school, you go and do accounting or engineering or you know something like that no, no one ever told you to be a scientist so I think you know my job next few years make sure everyone knows when they finish school that a scientist is the coolest job there is um, yeah it's hard work but it's fun so you know you've got to do your hard work but it, it, you get that reward of say field trips for instance um, and yeah if they know they can do that and there's jobs in the future around science we're so adaptable you know we can go into mining we can go into councils academia there's I like options 
and as a scientist you've got plenty of options well I believe anyway yeah so were you the sort of kid that you would always have a fishing rod yeah. in your hand yeah, yeah. Uh, until uh, Viv moved in next door and he was a professional fisherman as well and then they had nets so um, yeah and I, I suppose from net fishing um, you can get a bit better idea of what's actually there um, we've even got new techniques now of electro fishing for instance um, I haven't been lucky enough to go out and do that yet but um, that's another way we do it um, I probably haven't held a fishing line in all honesty in probably a decade yeah yeah um, but yeah once I think once you start doing uh, the research I'm not sure I don't have the time anymore I still would love to but yeah so when you got to high school did you have the passion then that you wanted to do something no like that? no so I was your typical regional boy um, in my case I went to a primary school state primary school had all my mates there and then I got sent to a Catholic high school in Gladstone Chanel and uh, you know I didn't have my my group of friends so growing up with your group of friends you've got your naughty mates and you're not naughty mates and I did well at school and you were still that but that was Adam that's okay when you get to high school and puberty kicks in and you know the frontal lobe isn't fully developed you school for me was more of a social day out my favorite teacher was the tuck shop lady um, yeah it wasn't until I, I, I got back to university, engineering I first went into here at the, at the uni, that it starts to, you do it because you want to do it. Like, I passed everything at school, it was very easy. But there, were, there wasn't that, uh, I suppose, at school that, that they, they didn't have that passion, I think, that when you come into a university and you're a lecturer, they're actually passionate about what they're teaching you, they're not just reading it out of the book, per se, so. So why engineering at the end of the um, that this, The old story, if you're good at maths, um, you're, instead of being an electrician, you should probably go and become an engineer. And uh, we had, we've still got, and we had back then, the best engineering um, in Australia. We had the, the co-op. So um, I did two years of that. Uh, the maths was a lot of fun. It actually made the maths that I do now somewhat easy. So the engineers listening out there um, you are fantastic at maths. Um, yeah, and then I actually went from engineering to business at the uni here to keep the parents happy and uh, did accounting for two years. And uh, no, I, I didn't want to account for every six minutes of my life. Um, so I, I took a year off and I got a job in Gladstone uh, managing the bottle shop down there and I wanted to just take a bit of time off and I wanted to, and this is going to sound funny but we've had a saying here at the uni from whenever I can remember be what you want to be be whatever you want to be um, and I was like yeah bugger it I want to do a job that I enjoy and so took some time off and I was like well when I wake up what do I want to do with myself and when I was what 23 it was I want to get on a boat and be out on the water all day like so maybe a park ranger and then you start your degree the environmental science and you're getting through it and you're like hang on, if I keep going here, and you start to see what the lecturers are doing, and I was lucky they, they'd take me out in the field again with them, and I got a job back in Gladstone where I was volunteering from a child, so I was able to work with terrestrial guys, marine guys, freshwater, economics, like 
a wide variety and they, they, you know, they let me have a taste of everything. And then you've got to decide. Inevitably, you have to decide, I can't be a generalist anymore. I have to do, do my PhD and specialise. And uh, that's, been a, that's been a fun journey. Uh, but we're nearly at the end. I don't have any more results or ideas to come up with. I just have to now finish the writing. Okay. And uh, for, a, you know, for, a regional, um, for a regional bloke, I think the writing's probably the most intimidating part of being an academic. Um, I think we have a natural advantage in the field because it's our home turf, we know it. Our granddads have taught us, his dads have taught him. So we've got that traditional knowledge as well that helps us out. Um, so you yeah. did a master's program with us? No, so I did um, my Bachelor of Environmental Science with mm -hmm. a land and water major. Yeah. And then I went on and I did an honours in Lake Awonga um, on the barramundi and the food supply. And that was, funnily enough, um, every time I seem to do my own research, we get floods. So halfway through that project, Awonga Dam flooded. It went 12 metres over the spillway. We had 300 tonnes of metre-long predators enter our system um, and they all got sick. At that stage, I was an honour student. I couldn't get up and say what I thought was the problem because it was, a, it was a national story. You know, industry was evil and they were to blame. And I don't think it's as simple as the, that. You know, our harbour can potentially carry maybe 10 tonnes of barramundi. 300 tonnes of barramundi sitting in Lake Awonga with no problem finding food. You know, they're just fat, healthy buggers. They go over the top of the Awonga spillway fall down a 50 metre cement slide, hit rocks at the bottom, birds attack them, they lose all their slime, they've got injuries, then they go from a freshwater environment to a marine in which they've never been. And on top of that, you've got 300 tonnes where a carrying capacity is usually 10. It doesn't matter where we were, they were getting sick. Mm. That's the bottom line. Um, but that doesn't sell papers. So um, I'm a bit more confident now saying these types of things. Um, and inevitably I'll have to become more confident in, in saying these things, but I think it's important for our listeners to understand that um, a lot of the things that you read or hear on the news is simply touching the surface of the science that's being discussed. If you're really interested, you, act, you really need to go in and look at the literature. Um, and sometimes that can be hard, but uh, it's a lot easier these days with the internet. For instance, I just get on Google and I can look up anything. My professor had to go to the library and order hard copy journals in. So we're, su we're in such a shifting time. When you come to uni now, you're not, you're not here to listen to an old grey-haired man tell you everything. Those days are finished. We've got the world's information there. I just have to teach you now how to learn, how to tell right from wrong, how to become a detective, so to speak, and then you can become... Uh, comfortable with content within an hour or two it's that it, it's just changed so so much even from when i started in engineering to where we are now you know we were enrolling ha with handwritten stuff so it's been a it, interesting going through the university as we're changing but that's how we did with school as well my generation so it's yeah i think we're lucky actually because we got to see how the old school works how the new school works, and then hopefully my generation can adapt the two so that we get a 
you know, a really good product at the end. Yeah. Can you tell us about um, the actual research topic that you're working on at the moment? Okay, so my research is on the Baffle Creek catchment yeah, down in Miriam Vale. So that is probably five hours north of Brisbane, two hours south of Rocky. Um, it's a catchment that uh, to date we haven't really messed with. We've got a bit of farming and stuff in there, light grazing, but it's not like the other catchments where we've gone in and built huge dams and developed it that much. If you fly from, say, Brisbane to Rocky, every estuary leaving the East Coast is developed. Then you get to Baffle Creek and it's not. So when the supervisor came and offered the project to me, it was one of those ones where it was like, we didn't have an idea, it was just, you're going to do a PhD on Baffle. And it's a, usually a PhD will start knowing they're studying this for this long with this many replicates and at the end we'll have this. Mine was a bit more of a old school discovery one where there's Baffle Creek, you've got 28 months to go out and measure whatever you want, let's find something that no one's come up with. So there was a little bit of pressure, just a little bit. Um, but I'm so lucky to study a natural Australian system because there's not that many left on the East Coast. So our results then, other than the, other than the council using it to you know, upgrade their treatment plant, which they did, and they can maybe um, alter some of their management techniques based on this study, I'm, I had to get it from that local focus to international. And so where I've come to with that now is small water bodies like Baffle Creek, there's a lot more of those around the world with a lot more people getting their drinking water from small supplies rather than the big um, you know, city supplies. So you've got a lot of regional communities that rely on these small water supplies. And the small water supplies are much more variable they're prone to sudden change a lot more than you know you so a wonga dam my honors is 30 kilometers north of of baffle but that water body is so large it's got some stability to it so when we have rain events you the water quality parameters don't change a great deal whereas baffle creek depending on what intensity the rain is you can flush it or there's, it, it just has so many different responses to rain and, and environmental conditions. It's a lot more, uh, it's a lot harder to understand. So that's, that's, that, that sucked six months ago, 12 months ago, but when you get the aha moment and you're like, oh, I've got it, then it's like, oh, now this is actually really good stuff because our research here in, from you know, CQU can be used in South America and Africa to, in developing nations and they can use this research and we don't put it into a journal that you've got to pay for because my audience is going to be developing countries so they need to have it for free so it's all open access I, I, that's I think knowledge shouldn't be something we have to pay for if you're interested in something the internet's there you should have access to it. I've often heard you talk about Baffle Creek as being Pristine, one of the most pristine. Oh, it's, a, it's a funny term, yes. Uh, um, okay, so after my first um, journal article was accepted, I had to go away from pristine, and uh, I have to now say relatively pristine. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, so relative to everything else, yeah. There's, we don't have development upstream. Um, if Captain Cook was to land again, like Baffle Creek comes from, apparently comes from the 1770 when they sent the boys up the creek to find some some fresh water 
they couldn't find any, they were baffled. So if they were to land again at 1770 and head back up Baffle, it hasn't really changed that much. So it's nice to have a system in that type of condition. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure I'd have to travel past say Cairns up that way to find another catchment that is, doesn't have a dam or a weir across it. So yeah, um, the, I also like to call it the Champagne region. We've talked before about um, the listeners there might have heard a, a term terroir. It's a French term that they use and their, their wines, they taste of the land, it's terroir. They're very romantic language, the French. And I find it ironic that we understand more and we talk more about wine tasting and how wine tastes and we understand that it tastes like that because of the soils. Yet we fail to understand that every single one of our water supplies is in a different catchment. It's got different geology. It's got different rainfall patterns. It's got different development. It's going to have, you know, a tewar. It's going to have an underlying tewar as well. Um, so if we can get that message out, that you know, our tap water, it might taste different from city to city. But of course it does. The people in that city aren't the same as the people in the other city either. So I often, you know, what did I say that our water supplies are as unique as the populations they serve so yeah um monday night i had a family from charleville come up and uh, they drank our yapoon water no i can taste the chlorine so depending on what water you're used to you generally like your water you go somewhere else and their water might taste a bit funny mm -hmm. yeah so that just leads me into another thing that i know that you're um you have an opinion about about bottled water versus yeah tap water yeah and we're you know there's this huge influx of people that are you know hell-bent on buying water all the time what's your take on that oh, this is one of these phenomenons that baffles me pardon the pun but can you imagine trying to 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 buy bottled water a generation ago or two generations ago it just wouldn't have happened so then i i think well why is it that we've come to accept this like people they accept the fact now and it's, I, 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 I don't understand but if you think about it if tap water had the marketing money that Pepsi and Coke put into bottled water potentially people would understand more about tap water and it being like they don't tell you that bottled water does not have to pass Australian drinking water guidelines it has to pass a, a food guideline the same as our beer or soft drink to me, that's crazy. So there's, there's studies out there showing if they leave bottled water under certain conditions and certain light conditions, that can, if there's one bacteria in there, that can take off and you're going to then be exposed to bacteria in your water. Um, so it's not always safer to drink bottled water than it is tap water. If you're on holidays, you know, in another country, bottled water, brush your teeth with bottled water, live on that stuff. But in Australia, to me, it's a waste of money. Um, again, being out in the field, the biggest problem I actually see is debris. And plastics, are, you know, the, the, once they're in the environment, they soak up your pesticides and your herbicides and then other animals eat it. And it's just, to me, it, 
I don't, I don't, I don't know if we can fix the problem, but I think, um, you know, we're just, this just society, you know, we, we want something, we want it now. Yeah. Is it, do you think that it's a lot to do with the taste? Because we, there is variances in, in, in town waters across the country? Um, yeah, it, especially say you've got somebody traveling, so truck drivers would really understand the difference between taste. But I think if we could get, if we could start, you know, talking about taste like they do about wine, where taste is not an indicator of if it's healthy or not, or if it's a risk to your health. It just, I actually like water that, that has a bit of a taste to it that, because then I, like not a chemical taste, but that, you know, almost a, a dirt taste. And then it's like, you, you know that this water hasn't been, um, it hasn't had much chemicals put into it because it probably didn't need it to get it to a, a level that we can drink it. So yeah, leave it with me. It's gonna be a bit of a, I, I'm already starting on all the nieces and nephews and pick up the water and oh you don't want to drink that and you know you explain to them that what does this bottle look like if it's in the water like a jellyfish and the turtle will eat it so they get it unfortunately it's again it's probably my generation that you know I think is probably responsible for this consumerism I want this and I want it now yeah, yeah. and drinking water I've got to be so careful with what I say because I could study the gut bacteria of a possum and no one else knows, so they just take your word for it. When you're talking about drinking water, everyone's got it at home. So they all have, a, everyone has an opinion. Um, and it's, it's often a very, um, very heated. It's very subjective almost. So Gladstone, for instance, had a, they decided to take the fluoride out of their drinking water. Um, they made that decision on the council on a Monday and it was gonna get taken out a month or two later. The next day in the paper, they had people um, saying thank you, because now that they've taken the, uh, the fluoride out of the water, their stomach problems have been fixed. So there was, the fluoride was still in the water, but they thought it wasn't, so then they, it was fixed. So it's a, very, it's a very subjective area, water, very subjective. And you know me, I like to almost say things jokingly to get a bit of a response. So I've always got to be careful with that, yeah. Just going back to your Baffle Creek research, now you're working with the Miriam Shire? Uh, Gladstone Regional right. Council. Okay. Yep. And how, how is that, go I mean, how is it going to affect the water treatment um, facility? Okay, so the, da so the data that I collected has already been used, they've upgraded, so they've put in a completely new uh, treatment facility which is great um, but yeah it's funny the councils and those guys are interested in in the data per se not so much the the PhD side of things but there's a few things in the PhD that not only the Miriamvale um, water plant can use but the other small guys so we have manganese problems in central Queensland in their water so the main issue with manganese is when grandma bleaches her whites uh, it turns your whites an orange or a brown color and we had that in Rockhampton after the cyclone our water was coming through really brown and that was your manganese and your iron so um, luckily I had some data similar to what Rocky had and that gave me a bit of an idea so my first paper was on looking at the cycle of manganese so the council then can use uh, how the ecology of the manganese works in the system to then
know, all right, at this time of year is when it's a risk, after this type of rain event, it's a risk. And it just, it helps them sort of um, streamline their management. So instead of going and having to do everything, we've done it and then they can use that information. Yeah. Okay. Is there something that you could um, tell young people that would help them with their you know, career choices in the future? What would you sort of suggest for teenagers coming through the system now looking at careers like that you've chosen? Okay, so I can talk as a 17-year-old uh, lad. You don't know what you want to do when you're 17. You think you do, but you don't. But what I'd say is think about what you want to be when you're 30, when you're 40, when you're 50, and then start making little corrections in that direction. So um, I wouldn't necessarily jump straight into uni unless that's, you know that's what you want to do. Or like me, you might not know what you want to do. So you might want to jump in and have a go at a few different things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think um, you have to work for the rest of your life. So why do a job that you hate? So like me, think about when you wake up in the morning, what do you want to do? And let that be an indicator um, because what you want to do, if you want to do it, you'll put more effort in, you'll do better at it, you'll get more success, and then you've got options. So pick something that, don't pick something because you think that's what society wants you to do or that's what your parents want you to do. Because there's only you, you it's, it's you on your own for the rest of your life. So you have to pick something that you're happy with. So if we could get something here at the uni where we could get, you know, high school students in year 12 to come and maybe you know work with the researchers for a week or two in the holidays or work with the engineers I think that gives you a bit more of an insight you're like oh this is cool like this is good stuff but yeah you know give it a give it a crack if you like it keep going if you don't like it don't be afraid to say this isn't for me I'm going I need to make a correction and make your correction as for the ladies, they're a lot more mature than what we were at 17. Uh, so, yeah, pick and stick, ladies. You, you guys know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, your um, research has won you an award recently. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, okay. So the Australian Water Association every year have a bit of a, a, a night where they get together and sort of have a look at what the industry's been doing and reward projects I think that they can see that are making a difference so that was a really nice surprise um, especially going up against say you know your sandstone universities uh, it was great for us to have a win on the night but I, I think even the industry is starting to recognize that we need a regional focus um, you know the population in the regions aren't, isn't as big but there's a lot more populations, individual populations in the regions. So, um, yeah, I th that's why I think we did well. I think because we're doing good research in the regions and a lot of the research I come across in Australia, is, it's based more on your, um, your larger population centres. So, yeah, I, I think they recognise the fact that it's a natural system as well. Um, played to my advantage, but we've got nationals in, Mar in May now. Mm. So we've, um, you didn't automatically get into nationals because there's seven states, there's only three finalists. So Queensland, we're in. Um, so it'd be, it'd be oh, great if CQU could beat Melbourne and Sydney as well. 
yeah i love i, I love the region um i don't want to go anywhere this is this is where we grew up so for me showing the guys down south that um you know we can, can compete and and beat them um just goes to show that you don't have to sit in a lecture theater with 500 people to go to uni you can come here and your lecturers know your name and I tell you, that makes a difference, a big difference, yeah. When you're not out on the boat or um, beside Baffle Creek testing water, yes. what are you doing? <sighs> it's sad at the moment, writing. Writing? Writing, yeah. writing, writing, yeah. Um, so basically, um, four hours a day is just taken up with writing. Um, and PhDs, we don't have much money, so then I garden probably for the rest of the day. Um, yeah, it's been a while since I've had any fun. Um, a long time. It's very sad. <laughs> well, but then I get paid to have fun. I get paid to go out and catch mud crabs or catch barramundi. And, you know, I've, so I find myself pinching myself often when that happens. But um, PhD, you've got to accept your suffering know it's going to be a hard journey um, and nobody's going to do it for you. It's all up to you. If you do well, good on you. If you don't do well, it's on you as well. So um, it's taken me a little bit longer, but I wanted to make sure that I did, <laughs> I did Baffle Creek justice. And growing up in Gladstone, I know that there was, there was eyes keeping an eye on what I was doing. And I needed to make sure that I did a really good job. I often joke that in the regions, we have to be 10 times better than the guys from the capital cities. You, you can hear my voice. Studies show that a regional accent, um, people from Sydney or Melbourne will automatically think your IQ is 40 points lower. So, you know, these are the things that I want to try and start busting. I used to be worried about sounding like a regional kid. Not anymore. Like, this is us. Be proud of it. Own it, you know. We do good work up here. Um, and that's probably uh, some of the confidence I needed from the award. Um, but other than that, you don't take the awards too seriously, hopefully. If you do, then yeah, you need to have a look in the mirror, I think. And one of the questions we'd like to ask our podcast talent is, is there anything quirky that we should know about you all? We quirky? Could, could oh, know goodness. About you. Is there anything weird or...? Um... Uh, I, I am a little bit unique. Mm -hmm. um, I, most of the things I do that are weird, but I've learned to embrace that now. Now teaching into undergrad, that weirdness hooks so many of the students in. And I was drawn to the weird guy that gets excited about, oh, look, there's a new algae. Like, I was getting excited about catching small mud crabs, for goodness sake. Like, if you told me when I was 13 that you'll be excited to catch an undersized mud crab, I'd say you're mad. But I get more excited by, you know, a juvenile mud crab or a juvenile barramundi than I do an adult one. Um, other than being weird, I'm, I'll, I'll think of what do I... I'm probably weird in that most people these days are scared to talk because they might say something wrong. Yeah, if I say something wrong, it wasn't intentional. Um, so that's something as an academic I need to learn. Um, they're very precise in their words and Unfortunately, I wasn't brought up in a community where our vocabulary was as big as, say, the guys coming from London. So I've had to learn to just, you know, this is me. 
Uh, you get you, you get what you get, um, and I'm not apologising for it anymore. People like it. Well, academics don't, but the community does and the students do. And the students are my audience, and my research is applied, so I want it to be able to be taken up and understood by mum and dad. So that's sort of how I try and do things, and that, gets, that makes me look a little bit weird sometimes, yeah. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.